Bart's fear of being buried alive in a box. <laughs> I just had to quit thinking about being buried alive in a I have two words for you this morning. Listen very carefully. Stop it! Isn't that a wonderful way to begin a message from the Word of God? Essentially, this is the message that Paul has for the Galatians. They have been listening to some false teachers who have come into their midst and have been distorting the gospel, and it has been making inroads in their hearts and minds. And Paul is writing a letter to them, and, if it, and he, essentially what he is saying in this first section in chapter 1 is, Stop it! Actually, what he says is uh, what is recorded for us in, um, well, I don't have that verse. What happened to it? I'll have to read it to you. If you'll turn to Galatians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, uh, we will be following along through out uh, this first paragraph, and uh, I'm not sure which page it's on, but um, it's in there. Uh, Galatians uh, chapter 1, at verse 6, he says, I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you and the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In other words, Paul is saying, stop it. He's trying to spare the Galatians of the serious damage that they will incur if they keep going the way that they are currently going. That The Galatians are pulling into the spiritual intersection of cars going this way and that, and Paul is up there waving his arms saying, stop it. You know, some have accused Paul of being insensitive, maybe even harsh. But a crisis situation calls for urgent action. Uh, some years ago, I had a heart attack and needed an ambulance. And so the ambulance came and uh, took me to the hospital. And I thought, surely, you know, there would be lights and sirens and stuff like that because, you know, I need help. But we weren't going very fast. Cars were passing by, and 
one of the guys in the back said, you know, if you uh, start feeling the pains come again, uh, just tell me and I'll give you a nitroglycerin tablet. So, okay. So uh, we get uh, about halfway there and I'm feeling pains uh, returning. And so I ask uh, for a nitroglycerin tablet and the guy says, oh man, you don't want to take that. It'll give you a headache. <laughs> I'll take the headache, you know, give me the pill. Uh, finally, he did give it to me. Um, I think uh, maybe they didn't, the, the guys who were attending to me didn't realize, uh, you know, how urgent the matter was. Um, what Paul is wanting to do here is to alert the Galatians quickly and thoroughly that the danger that they are facing uh, requires urgent action. And if I can communicate that same sense of urgency to you this morning, that's what I want to do. So uh, today we're beginning a new series of sermons on discernment. I think I had a slide up there. Uh, there it is. So we're, we're going to be doing a new series of fake news or good news. Uh, you know, there's fake good news and there's real good news. So we want to find out how do we discern the difference between the true good news and the fake uh, good news. Um, this was something that the uh, people in the Galatian churches needed. They needed to be able to discern uh, what was true and what was fake as far as the good news was concerned. Paul had gone into their regions. He had preached the gospel and established churches throughout uh, the region of Galatia. And uh, then after Paul came, there were some other people who came along who were known as Judaizers. The Judaizers were uh, Jews who had become Christians, uh, but they looked at uh, Christianity as sort of an extension of Judaism. That is, you had to continue to be a good Jew and just add Jesus there. Uh, on, onto uh, that system. And so for the Judaizers, in order to be saved, you couldn't just be a Gentile and come to Christ by coming to Christ. Uh, you had to come to Christ by coming to Judaism first, which meant you, you had to be circumcised. You had to uh, observe all of the laws of Moses. Uh, you had to be baptized. That was part of being introduced into the Jewish community. And, and so you had to be a good Jew, and then you, know, you could become a Christian. And they were beginning to latch on to that because it seemed, sense, it seemed to make sense to them. And, and Paul comes along here and he writes this epistle, this letter to them, and he efficiently, effectively says, stop it. Stop believing in what these false teachers are telling you. And so uh, throughout Galatians, he is equipping them with discernment. And uh, that is what we want to do here because there are a lot of other quote-unquote gospels out there uh, that vie for our attention and, and the, the thing they have in common uh, same thing that we have with the, the Galatian issue is that there are you know quote-unquote uh, gospels out there that say that Jesus is not enough it's Jesus plus something else and so what Paul is doing in his letter to the Galatians is saying essentially that Jesus plus nothing is everything. 
And that's what I want to communicate to you. So here's what, here's how I want us to approach the text. I want to uh, assess the situation, then determine what is at stake, and finally point to the corrective measures that scripture calls for in each of these situations. So first, let us assess the situation. So uh, we began by getting acquainted with the characters in the drama. So first of all, there are the Galatians. Uh, the region of Galatia is uh, what is now known as modern day Turkey. So there you see a map. If you are familiar with uh, you know, the, the world map, uh, maybe this will look somewhat familiar to you. Uh, and if you're familiar with scripture, some of the names of these cities uh, will be familiar to you as well. So uh, anyway, that's who Paul is writing to, those uh, Christians and the churches there in the region of Galatia. And uh, here is what he is saying to them. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. So there it is. The Galatians were turning to a different gospel. Paul is shocked. He's dismayed. He's astonished that the Galatians had turned so quickly from the gospel that he preached to them so that they could embrace a fake gospel. And then Paul goes on in verse 7 uh, to make it clear he says, not that there is another one, that is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And uh, this is where the, the Judaizers come in. So we talked about them um, just a little bit. We'll talk about them more as we go along. But one of the tactics that the Judaizers used was to do what they could to discredit Paul as a teacher. Paul, who is he? He's not one of the original 12 apostles. He was not with Jesus in Galilee. Uh, who, who does he think that he is? So why should we listen to him about what Jesus taught or what is expected of, of those who follow him? So uh, you can imagine uh, them saying something like this about Paul. Uh, well, who told you that it's no longer necessary to keep the law of Moses, like, you know, circumcision especially? Now, where did he come up with that idea that that wasn't necessary? You know, he's probably just trying to make things easy for you uh, so that he can be popular. He sounds like a people pleaser to us. Now, before we go any further, let me say right now that if Paul wanted human approval he would certainly be doing something besides being a slave of Christ, which we see in verse 10. He says, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So being a servant of Christ or a slave of Christ is um, not the way that you get the approval of people. So, Anyway, the Galatians had forgotten what Paul had preached to them and the Judaizers were insisting that you couldn't go from being, you know, just pagans, uh, unbelievers to being Christians just like that. You've got to become a Jew first before you could ever think about becoming 
a Christian and had this long process, which uh, we've already uh, referred to. And uh, Paul, in response to what the Judaizers are telling the people uh, in Galatia, he's uh, resisting this teaching of the, the that the Judaizers are insisting that your sins cannot be atoned for through Christ alone. You also have to do the rituals. And Paul fires off this letter to say that anyone who says that Jesus is insufficient for the forgiveness of sins is preaching a false gospel. Uh, we see that in uh, Galatians 2.16. No one is justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So this is the major theological point that Paul makes in his letter to the Galatians. A person is justified through faith in Christ's death, not by works of the law. So fundamentally, this letter is about the basis of, of our relationship with God. The Galatians began to re rely upon their ceremonial obedience, especially their circumcision. But, you know, all of us are tempted to base our relationship with God on what we do rather than on what Christ has done for us. We feel justified when we've gone to church or when we've had our daily quiet time. And we feel condemned and unworthy of God's love when we fall into sin. So Galatians is a strong rebuke of making the gospel about our works. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Anything else is not the gospel. So again, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. If the law could justify a person, then Jesus died for no reason. He wasted his life. So this is what Paul had preached to the Galatians, and the Galatians have believed that message, but now they are turning away from it. And Paul was dismayed, he was hurt, and he was angry. Not necessarily in that order. Before we go on, this seems like a good place to uh, stop and see how our situation is much like that of the Galatians. The Galatians are not the only ones who have ever embraced the gospel of Christ, only to turn away from it and embrace another gospel. We also are drawn in by the so-called gospel that tells us that we can, say, we can be saved by our good works or by being a good moral person. And then there is the prosperity gospel and the self-help gospel and the political gospel and the social gospel and the list goes on. Uh, but we need to be aware that there are a lot of false gospels circulating in the country today. Any message that tells you that grace through faith in Christ alone cannot save you or that your sins are not that serious or that there's something other than sin that you need to be free from is proclaiming to you a fake gospel. So people are believing the fake good news. That's the situation in the churches of Galatia. They are exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And it's not only the case 
uh, with Galatians, it's also true in our day where we live as well. So, what's at stake here? Well, the church in Galatia is at stake. Christianity is at stake. Uh, Paul knew that if the creeping heresy in Galatia took root, it would spread throughout the, the infant churches in that region, not only crippling them, but destroying them. So it's not just the churches in uh, Galatia that were at risk. Uh, Christianity in its uh, nature was at stake. And uh, the, the, the epistle to the uh, Galatians stands as the divine word to correct this insidious error. So it's no wonder the theologian Timothy George said, Galatians is a tornado warning. Christianity is at stake. The church is at stake. What else is at stake? Well, the gospel is also at stake. If Paul doesn't defend the gospel and defend it vigorously, people will believe in a counterfeit gospel which cannot save them from sin or from death or from hell. A minute or two ago, I mentioned that most people today don't think that sin is really all that serious. You know, if your sin is not such a great problem, then Christ is really not such a great Savior, is he? The truth be told, we're not really convinced that our sin is all that serious. I mean, after all, we're good moral people. The biggest problem you can have with grace is an exalted view of yourself. When you do not think that your spiritual condition is really all that desperate, then you have an exalted view of yourself. When you are sure that God must surely grade on a curve, and since there are plenty of people out there in this world worse than you, then surely you are in good standing with God. Such reasoning exalts man and it creates a low view of God. And when sin is taken lightly, you know, something else is at stake. You know, the, the church is at stake, the gospel is at stake, but the glory of Christ is also at stake. The recovery of the glory of Christ's salvation is our most pressing need. The glory of Christ through the salvation he provides for us is at stake. This is why Paul is writing. Martin Luther, uh, the, the famous reformer, loved the book of Galatians. It was his favorite book of the Bible. He wrote a commentary on it, which is still quite helpful even today. And I want to quote just a line or two from his commentary. Um, the language is a, a little archaic, uh, but it's, it's clear nonetheless. So here's the quote. Luther says, if this doctrine be lost, then is also the doctrine of truth, life, and salvation also lost and gone. If this doctrine flourish, then all good things flourish. Religion, the true service of God, the glory of God, the right knowledge of all things which are necessary for a Christian man to know. And he also adds uh, that this doctrine can never be taught, urged, and repeated enough. 
So we have a serious situation in the church today just as the Galatians did. And it's more than just serious. It's urgent. The gospel is being distorted. So Christianity is at stake. The gospel of grace is at stake. The glory of Christ is at stake. So what shall we do? Well, we need to take corrective action. Well, what, pray tell, might that action be? Well, Paul lays out for us two steps of action. Uh, here's the first one. Do not buy into anything contrary to the gospel that's laid out in Scripture. We find this uh, from verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we, we preach to you, let him be accursed. Well, that's a pretty strong statement, don't you think? But it's also perfectly clear. We'll uh, get to what Paul means by the phrase, let him be accursed, uh, in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about the possibility of an angel coming to you and preaching a different gospel. How likely is it that you might hear a different gospel from an angel? Well, um, Muslims believe that the angel Gabriel uh, appeared to Mohammed and uh, gave him the Quran. That's what they believe. Well, I can tell you right now that even if an angel did come to Muhammad and give him the Quran, it was not the angel Gabriel that we know because the angel Gabriel that we know from Scripture would never give anyone a gospel that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then there's another famous angel, the angel Moroni, whom the Mormons believe appeared to Joseph Smith in upstate New York and gave him a different gospel altogether. Do not buy into anything contrary to the gospel that's laid out in Scripture. So that's the first action step. Now we come to the second one. Uh, where Paul says in the last part of this verse, anyone, even an angel who preaches a different gospel, let such a person be accursed. In the original language, the, the word is anathema. And some versions of the Bible uh, just use that word anathema instead of the word uh, accursed. Uh, the word anathema, uh, that's a Greek word, but in the uh, Old Testament, uh, the equivalent is the word harem, uh, not harem, but harem, uh, which was um, often used uh, in the Old Testament. Remember when the, the people of Israel were delivered from bondage in Egypt under Moses and they uh, come through the Red Sea and they wander in the wilderness and then eventually after 40 years of wandering they come to the banks of the Jordan and Jericho is just on the other side of the river and uh, God has told uh, Joshua uh, to go in. He says, um, this city, you shall destroy it utterly, uh, you know, kill everyone, uh, even all the livestock. And uh, the, the things, there, there are certain things that are under the ban. Uh, the word ban here is the word harem, means uh, devoted to destruction. 
So uh, everyone who was in Jericho and all the stuff that was there, including the, the, the gold and the silver and the uh, uh, fancy clothing, uh, all of that was under the ban and it was to be destroyed. And for the most part, uh, the people of Israel did that, but the next time they went up against one of the fortified cities in that region, Ai, uh, the Israelis were routed and some 36 men lost their lives. And so Joshua goes to the Lord and he's disillusioned with God. The whole nation is disillusioned with God because they have been told uh, by God that they were going to be victorious. And so uh, Joshua just lays it out. And so uh, God comes back to him and says, get up on the, the floor. Uh, Israel has sinned and he uh, spells it out that uh, someone has taken something that was under the, the harem, uh, the ban. And uh, so they buy a system of casting lots. The, the lot falls on Achan. Achan had taken some gold. He had taken uh, what one of the versions of scripture says, a Babylonish garment and hidden them under his tent. Uh, but he comes clean. And so uh, Achan and his family are, are all stoned with stones on, on that day. And we look at that and uh, we are just bewildered. Are you not bewildered by that story? I mean, that doesn't seem to be in character with God at all, does it? You know, why would he you know, command the destruction of, of all the people and of all the livestock and all of this good stuff that could be put to good use? Oh, why would God be so restrictive? Why would he seem to be so severe. Well, this is a picture of how God treats sin. God does not want any trace of sin to remain in our lives. Let me give you this analogy. Uh, suppose you have cancer, and uh, it's disturbing, of course. So you go to the doctor, and he says, you know, uh, this is the, the type of cancer I think that we can uh, get out by surgery. Uh, so let's get you scheduled here uh, as soon as we can. And so uh, you go into the hospital, you have the surgery, and uh, you come out and the doctor's beaming and he says, I got most of the cancer. Uh, there's just a few cells left that were, uh, I didn't really want to bother with. But, you know, for the most part, you're in good shape. Would you feel good about that? Would you be thinking, well, at least most of the cancer is gone. I've only got a few cells in there. And uh, what damage could just a few cells of cancer do? You know something about cancer, don't you? If you have a few cells of cancer, what's it going to do? Is it going to go away on its own or is it going to grow? Yeah, it's going to grow, isn't it? The same is true with sin. And God knows that that is the case with sin, which is why he wanted all of that stuff, everything associated with the worship of false gods, he wanted it eradicated, stumped out, totally removed from influence of his people. And that is the picture behind this word, accursed, which we read in Galatians chapter 1, verse 8. What Paul is calling for is a complete removal of the influence of these false gospels, of these distorted gospels from among the people who were there. And what does that tell us about God's attitude towards sin? Is God, you know, kind of nonchalant with it? Is uh, he okay with some sin? Well, at least you're not doing the major sins, you know. For the most part, you know, you're all pretty good folks. 
Does God take sin seriously? Well, sometimes we think that he's not that serious about sin because we're not that serious about sin. But let me tell you how serious God is about sin. Do you know what it took to get rid of every trace of sin? I mean, not just sin for the most part, uh, not just what the Jews used to do, doing the sacrifices and the rituals and rolling the sins back, you know, for another year. Uh, do you know what it takes to get rid of sin? Well, we should know this because the only way that our sins could be forgiven would be through the means of offering the sacrifice of a perfect person. And the only perfect person who ever lived, we know, is Jesus Christ. So let me give you a, a brief picture of what the atonement looks like. Uh, we're familiar with the cross, but I want to um, you know, go back and to uh, Passover a little bit. You know, there was uh, the selection of, of a lamb. Uh, the lamb had to be perfect and spotless without blemish. And uh, that's the only way it could qualify. Jesus was the perfect lamb of God without spot, without blemish, meaning he had no sin whatsoever, not even just a little bit. Uh, there was also something known as a scapegoat. Uh, a scapegoat uh, was, was brought in and the priests would take their hands and lay them upon the scapegoat and they would thus transfer the sins of the people uh, to the goat and then drive the goat into the wilderness where presumably uh, it would wander until it was uh, eaten uh, by wild beasts and, uh, or fell off a cliff or something, but the point is that the sins were placed upon that goat and driven away from the people. Now take that image and transfer it to Jesus. Jesus as the scapegoat, the sins of all of the people have been laid upon him. And he is nailed to a cross outside the, the, the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And there is one word that would reflect the status of Jesus at that particular time. It is the word accursed, or in the Greek, anathema, or in the Hebrew, harem. This is how seriously God takes sin, is that he takes all of our sins, he places it upon Jesus, and he punishes Jesus as though all of the sins that any of us have ever committed are upon him. This is the real gospel. And when you believe the real gospel, the counterfeit gospels that come along that tell you that uh, true satisfaction can be found in some other way, uh, perhaps through uh, material goods or a number of different ways. But the good news for us is that Jesus has done for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. Not only 
that Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. It seems that since there is some confusion about what the gospel is in our current culture, even current uh, church culture, that it would be good to um, reiterate, uh, reinforce what the gospel is. The gospel is good news. That's what gospel means. And it is good news uh, because the gospel addresses the most serious problem that you and I as human beings have. And that problem is simply this, is that God is holy and righteous and just, and we are not. And at the end of our lives, we will be judged either by our own righteousness or our lack of it, or we will be judged according to the righteousness of another. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, not for his own sake, but for ours. He's done for us what we could not possibly do for ourselves. He lived a life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. The great misconception of our, of our day is, is this, that if God wanted to get rid of sin, couldn't he just sort of wave his hand like that and say, sin, you know, be gone. And just like that, it would be gone. But, you know, for God to do that uh, would mean that justice didn't really matter to him. For God to forgive you is a very costly matter cost the sacrifice of his only begotten son. So valuable was that sacrifice that God pronounced it valuable by raising Jesus from the dead. So that when Christ died for us, our sins were paid for, and when he was resurrected, we are justified. And so the gospel is something objective. It is the message of who Jesus is, and what he did. In conclusion, some say that we need to defend the gospel or fight for the gospel, but an admonition to do that can, uh, that can be pretty easily misunderstood. So uh, I want to finish with this quote from Charles Spurgeon, who said, the gospel is like a lion. Whoever heard of defending a lion, just turn it loose. It will defend itself. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, uh, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that he lived a perfect life. He, he lived the life that we should have lived. that he died the death that we should have died so that we may stand before you faultless and with great joy. 
And so we pray that the true gospel may find fertile soil in our hearts, that it may take root, that we may nourish it uh, by your word and by the uh, oft-repeating of your gospel to ourselves. Give us the desire to continue to preach this good news, this gospel to ourselves so that every trace of our heart believes it and in the process, uh, every vestige of sin uh, may be driven out. In this world, we recognize that we will never be free from sin. But we do look forward to that time when you come again and you resurrect these earthly bodies from the dust of the earth and we shall be remade in the likeness of which we were made to begin with, only this time without sin and with only the desire to bring glory to our Savior. In whose name we pray. Traditionally, uh, we recite one of the creeds together uh, before the sermon. Uh, but this morning, I would like for us to uh, recite the Apostles' Creed together after the sermon uh, to reinforce the, um, the message of God to us through his gospel. So uh, let us stand together and um, recite these words in unison and uh, then we will follow in song. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting.